Uh, the rest of us, if you would, hopefully you have a Bible, uh, either here like I have, that you can put your hands on, or on a phone or a tablet. Um, we're going to have one passage today, so last week we had several passages. Uh, this morning, uh, barring some last-minute prompting of the Lord, which could happen, uh, I'll, I'll have you turn to one passage, and that's Matthew 16. So this is where we've been preaching through the book of Matthew. Last week, uh, the Lord designed it that way, unforced. It just hit perfect for us uh, to hit the three previous verses from where we'll be this week, and it fit right in with Easter uh, last week. All right. I know that most of you have been with us uh, through this study, and there may be someone who's not been with us in this study, but regardless, I'm going to do a very quick review, and we're going to read our five, five verses of text this morning, and we'll see what the Lord wants to say to us. Uh, I'm, I, we continue to be in a flow. Everything that we're doing here is connected to what's previous to it. So the Lord and his disciples were at the northernmost point of Palestine. He's apparently just months until the cross. I mean, it's right near the end. He's getting ready to make his last journey down south to Jerusalem. In that process, he asked his disciples, who do you? He asked first, who do men say that I am? Basically, there was this idea that they think you're a prophet or one of the forerunners who's going to come right before the Messiah. There's enormous buzz among the crowd. They know that something big is coming. He says, who do you, my 12, who do you all say that I am? And they say, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the coming king that we've been expected. And in addition to that, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're more than we've been expecting. And as we noted for two weeks in a row, now three, verse 20, I'm not, not going to be on the screen, Jesus does something very unusual. He tells them, he acknowledges, yes, I am the Christ, you're right, you're blessed for knowing that, Peter, he acknowledges it, but then he tells the twelve, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah, that's very strange. We now know why he told them not to do that. Had the population heard that the Messiah is there, they probably would have rushed to try to make him king prematurely. But also the disciples are not ready to tell people that Jesus is the Christ because they know who he is, but they don't know what it means. They don't know what Jesus being the Christ means. And then verse 21, which we really focused a lot on last week, blew their minds. This was totally off the radar. I'm going to play on that again in a minute. Like picture radar, right? Got a radar screen. This is nowhere on their radar, their spiritual radar. They are not anticipating this at all. When he says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, he has to, because of God's love and man's sin, means that Jesus must, four things, go to Jerusalem, has to happen at Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecies, this is God's plan, he must suffer many things. They're hearing this, and this is not connecting because this is not their idea of the Messiah. He must suffer many things, and he must be killed, and he must be raised again on the third day. He must do those four things. That's not on their radar. That would blow their mind. And then I believe as we now read our text, verse 24 in particular, and verse 25, is also going to blow their mind, not to the extent of verse 21, but if I could say it this way, Here's our radar again. Verse 21 and verse 24 is like a massive mountain. They're flying through life, 
And all of a sudden, there's this massive mountain, and they're about to just run right into this. It's coming. It's right there. There's no time to divert. And they're wondering, how have we not seen this mountain? The problem is they've been blind to it the whole time. It was in the Scriptures, mainly verse 21. But now look at the fallout of verse 21. The Messiah has to suffer and be killed. Remember on verse 24. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. Here we go. Then Jesus told his disciples, by the way, Mark tells us this is no longer just the 12. There's some movement from verse 23 uh, up to, i got something snagging here. Oh, I see what's happening. All right, there's some movement from verse 23 to verse 24. This is a larger group. This is not just the 12 anymore. This is a crowd of would-be followers. Jesus told his disciples, this crowd, if anyone would, so hear, hear this personal, put yourself into this. Hear Jesus talking to you as if you were in this crowd. If anyone would come after me, so you are the Christ and you're headed to Jerusalem. I want in on that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I'm not going to play a lot on follow me because I think that's already implied. I don't need to explain a lot there. One commentator said the idea of follow me is literally like when we were younger. Some of us played follow the leader. So if you were to imagine some kids after church and they're playing follow the leader, and if the leader jumps up on that step and then jumps up here and goes down, and then all the little train has to do that. If the leader hops on his left leg three times and then on the right leg two times, then everybody has to do just like that. If the leader starts climbing through these chairs and your parents get all like, get down out of those chairs. I'm not that worried about it, but maybe you are and you start scolding them, then Whenever they jump down, all the other ones have to follow suit. And oh, I'm going to get a spanking, but i got to follow the leader. Okay. Um, whatever Jesus does, that's what we're doing. He's heading to Jerusalem. Did you catch what he's heading to Jerusalem for? But before you follow him, these other two things have to take place. Verse 24 again. It's the main thing we're going to focus on. If anyone would come after me, let him, number one, before you follow it, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25 fleshes that out. For whoever would save his life. Hold on. If you're headed to Jerusalem, for that, what you said in verse 21, and then you follow that with telling us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, I don't know that I want any part of that. Well, here's the flip of that. Whoever would save his life. I'm not going to go die. If you're going to die, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. Whoever would save his life, going to protect it will lose it. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he asks these two questions in verse 26. They're very famous, been asked many, many times. We don't have to spend a lot of time on our second point this morning. It'll come out of verse 26. Note these two very thought-provoking questions. And this is to illustrate verse 25. For what... Will a man, for what will it profit a man, let this sink in, picture it, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He gains the whole world. I mean the whole world. And all that the world offers, all the glory of the world, not just the possession of it, all the glory that's in the world. If he gains the whole world, and here's the only problem, he forfeits his soul. What has he gained? Second question, or what shall a man give 
in return for his soul? What would a man give in return for his soul? And in verse 27, brings it home with a promise. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. If, I, if, if, if we were there and could talk to that crowd, however large it was, we would almost want to tell them because now we have 2020 perspective. We've seen the rest of the New Testament played out. We know the promises. They didn't know there was going to be two comings of the Lord. But they had to hear that, right? Here he is already on earth, and he's referring to coming another time. So here's his promise again. For the Son of Man is going to come. Picture it. Mark it down. He's going to come with his angels. Well, they're not here at this point, so he's talking about another time. He will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, who is God. And then he will repay each person. Notice the text doesn't just say he will repay everyone, kind of like one fell swoop. This is very personal sounding to me. Then when he comes with the angels and in the glory of his Father, he will repay each one. How? According to what he has done. You are going to be repaid according to what you have done, not just what you've thought or felt. And then he finishes out with a controversial verse. Truly, again, he's standing in a crowd. He tells that group there on that day, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. Oh, good news. No, no, no. Let me finish. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And Mark adds the the words, with power. Again, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here. There are some, not telling you how many. There are some in this group right here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man. This is Jesus talking about Himself coming in his kingdom, and there's lots of theories about what that means. Would you notice with me three things this morning out of our text? We're going to spend the large predominant amount of time in the first point, and that's mainly focused verse 24 and then spilling over to 25. Here we go. Notice that Jesus calls believers to die to self. Jesus calls believers to die to self. You see the title of the message this morning, Discipleship Demands Sacrifice. We love Easter. And immediately on the heels of that text, here comes this one to take up your cross and follow Jesus after you've denied yourself. Can I start right here this morning? There are many churches that are preaching the truth this morning, many. But do y'all understand that there's a lot of churches that are preaching what's called a health and wealth gospel? A lot of health and wealth. In other words, here it is. If you're right with God and you have enough faith... And if you'll just claim the promises, then this life should be smooth sailing. It should be going all well. Everything should be pleasant. And if if it's not, then you're missing out on something. Something's wrong. You need to get right with God. And they smile a lot, and they blink a lot, and they sell a lot of books. But I'm telling you, and there's many of them all around the world, a bunch of them in America, the only problem with that message is it just doesn't line up with the New Testament and what Jesus says. The Lord says you should expect hardship. He's talking about pain and shame and persecution and crosses and denying yourself. And that just doesn't match what many of the largest churches in our country are saying. They're off base. I think they're picking, I think they're picking some texts that have to do with the millennial kingdom and forcing them into today. I don't know. I don't listen to them that much. But I just know when I hear them, it doesn't take long. Like, 
you're off base, man. You're telling your people the wrong message. This is what the Lord's trying to be honest with us. So did you catch what happened? The Lord dispels wrong notions about the Christ. Yes, I'm the Christ, but what your idea of the Christ is wrong. And now he's correcting the disciples' wrong notions about their place in the coming phase of the kingdom. Here's what he's saying. My kingdom is coming like you have pictured, only better than you have pictured, but that's not now. In the meantime, he's calling for sacrifice. Grace View, I cannot soften that. The, Lord, the message for them is the message for us. It's the message Jeff Bartlett needs to understand a little bit better than he has been. If you're going to follow me, so here it is. Oh, you're heading to Jerusalem and you're the Christ? But you didn't hear verse 21. I want in on that. I think I know why you're going to Jerusalem. You're getting ready to set up the kingdom. I want in on that. Okay, if that's you, you need to do two things before you follow me. Number one, deny yourself. What does that mean? I hope within these four things I'm going to have you write down that it will get the point across. I'm going to have to have you to write quickly, okay? So they're they're not on one screen, so they're going to pop up. You're going to need to write quickly. I'm going to give you four, not a lot of filler between. What does this mean? Verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, going to follow me, let him deny himself. First thing, deny himself. What does that mean? To deny oneself means to separate oneself from his own interests. To separate oneself from his own interests. It's this, here I am, these are my interests, these are your interests, this, these are the things we're vested in, or we could say the things we're invested in. These are the things I care about. If you're going to follow the Lord and be his disciple, then wherever the things that we're invested in and care so much about, wherever they differ from what he cares about, then we're going to have to separate from that. I'm going to have to leave that over there. I have to deny myself. Number two, what does it mean? To deny ourselves means to replace ourselves off the throne of our heart, off the throne of our life, and insert Christ on the throne of our life. To say that even more plain. If your pattern of life, if this describes you, just be honest. You're like, Jeff, I'm such and such years old, and I've pretty much got to where I am. I go through life. I use my logic. I use my eyes and my ears. I get a little counsel. I read a book or two. I ask those who care. Whatever makes sense to me, whatever deductions and inclinations, others would say, no, I don't really do that. I go with more what I feel. Whatever I feel in my gut, then that's the direction of life I take. The Lord's saying, okay, you've got to get off the throne of your life, and you've got to put him on the throne of your life, which means your feelings and inclinations are no longer going to set the direction of your path. It is literally going to be whatever commands of Christ, which we know those are in the word of God. So as I discover the commands of Christ, they are now authoritative. They're going to set the direction. Number three, before I give you this one, can we all acknowledge this? We all have a self-will. You have a self-will. I have a self-will. I have one. So, Jeff, what does that mean? There are some things I just want to do. I want to do some things. And there's some things I don't want to do. And you have things you want to do, and you have things you... I just don't want to do those things. I want to do those things. To deny ourselves means that we must be willing to die, die to our self-will. Note this whole sentence as you write it out. We must be willing to die to our self-will every day for two reasons. Number one, out of obedience to our Lord. 
And then also in gratitude for the salvation that he's already given us. So he's already given us this salvation. I'm grateful for that. So I'm going to have to deny and die to myself. Well, these are things I want to do. These are things I don't want to do. I'm going to have to die to that because I'm going to be obedient to my Lord. And then because I am grateful for the salvation he's already given me. Uh, did I include? Yes. See the word already provided? That's an important word because that tells us who this passage is for. This passage is not for people that are not yet a Christian. This passage is for Christians. The Lord's already provided. This is not I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get my salvation because I'm doing this. I'm going to deny myself because the Lord's already saved me and I'm so grateful for it. And he's my Lord. And if he's my Lord, I must obey him. And then one more. Write this down. To deny oneself means that nothing is off limits to Christ. Nothing. Like literally, he can change our plans at any moment. And when we discover that his word or the prompting of the Holy Spirit in relation to the word of God is changing our plans, then that means, well, here's what he's saying, then you do it. He sets the, even if it's a major shift, then nothing is kept off guard. Nothing is held back. Does that describe you? Before we look at the word cross, can I just say something? I don't mean this to sound too mean, but I just want to kind of be blunt, all right? No one should fool themselves into saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, if the pattern of their life is that they regularly live doing whatever they want to do with, number one, no concern with what the Lord wants them to do. Then don't go around saying, Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you just do what you want to do without concern for what the Lord wants to do. But even stronger, we could say, don't fool yourself into saying, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. If you regularly, your pattern of life is to do what you want to do when it is in direct opposition to what the Lord has clearly spoken in His Word. You ever seen somebody like that? They're saying they're a Christian. They say they're born again. They say Jesus is their Lord. And they know they know the Word of God says something about their life is clearly wrong, and yet they're like, I'm just going to overlook that. I know what the Bible says, and I know I'm out of step with what the Bible says, but I'm still living this way. Then stop saying He's your Lord and Savior. One, you very well may be fooling yourself. Two, you're giving the lost world the wrong impression that that's how a Christian lives. So stop it. Don't fool yourself. Next. The hard one. That was easy. You said, Jeff, that's the easy one. I'm uncomfortable, right? Well, here's the hard one. And it's separate. It's different. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So on Wednesday nights, we've been studying how do we study the Bible. So we have observations when we read a text over and over. And we make observations. Then we try to make an interpretation. And we've talked how there's one interpretation of a passage. Lots of applications. So in a little bit, I'll try to step back and we'll apply the text. But what is the interpretation of this text? The one interpretation that was meant by the original speaker and that was meant for the original hearers to hear. What would they have heard? So here we have this. Everybody with me? Take up your cross. What does this mean? I find that so often in Christianity, we use the word cross symbolically. They didn't. They didn't use the word cross symbolically. And I'm not going to say, so Jeff, 
Apparently, you're getting ready to take a literal approach to this verse. I am. And verse 25. But we don't have wooden crosses today. It's just not the form of execution. So the literal part is not that we need to get a piece of wood. But the truth that's being taught is literal. It's hard to explain. We're going into that a couple of weeks on a Wednesday night. The truth that's being taught is literal. The actual us taking up a piece of wood is not literal. For that group that morning, that day, some of them literally would have carried their cross. I know of at least three, according to church history, would have literally carried it later on in life. They would have carried their literal cross. So you're like, hey, Jeff, whoa, slow down. Let's soften this a little bit. Let's make it a metaphor. Even the metaphor is tough. Catch what R.T. France writes. So in a moment, you'll see it on the screen. I want you to hear it first. Just hear it. Uh, verse 24 in this, the idea of cross and verse 25, France writes the following. He's, it's kind of a, a thick quote, so hear it. I'll repeat a few parts. France writes, quote, Christian use of the language of self-denial has blunted the force of Jesus' words. Blunted means it's knocked the edge off, the sharpness. It's not hitting with the same power. You say, Jeff, you just talked about self-denial. What Did you catch what he's saying? There's deny yourself and then there's take up your cross. Some people just apparently want to approach the text and say, deny yourself, take up the He's just saying the same thing twice, just rephrasing it. No, they're separate. We've already talked about denying self, so now what does take up your cross mean? Back to his quote. Here's what he writes. Christian use of the language of self-denial has blunted the force of Jesus' words. So of Jesus' words, he writes this. You're going to write it in a moment. Hear it first. He says his words are about literal death. Following the condemned man on his way to execution. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. He hasn't even told them it's going to be on a cross, but he's now hinting what it's going to be. You take up your, you with me? I'm with you. Are you with me? Then grab your cross. Let's go. I'm going to die. Now he's going to die for our sins. We're not going to die for our sins. We're going to die in obedience to the Lord. He continues. His words are about literal death, following the condemned man on his way to execution. After this, you'll write it down. Hear this sentence. Discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. Write that down. Discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. So he's taking a very literal view, and we have to agree with that. What's the Lord telling these guys? Get ready to die. Can I say it this way? You know, you're writing. I'm so thankful for you multitaskers that can do two things at once. It helps me keep moving. What the Lord is calling you and I, even in 2021, in America, to have as a mentality is the following. When you get saved, my association with Jesus may very well result in my literal physical death. Well, then don't do it. No, I know who He is. I know He's the Lord. And I don't just know that he's the Lord. I've already taken him as my Lord and my Savior. I can never go back. Do you catch what just happened? This may result in my literal death. We, we in America would be absolutely shocked if that happened in America. If we went home today and we found out that some governor in such and such a state, right, 
Missouri, Kentucky, South Carolina, Arizona, put someone to death. They were executed, lethal injection, because they believe the word of God. They believe, in the, they believe that Jesus Christ, the Savior, literally they were executed today because they believe the word of God and they wouldn't back down from. We would be absolutely shocked. Now listen to me, not the people in first and second century. When Christians in the first, second century started following Christ, they very well knew this may result in my literal death. Go to another part of the world, another part of the world today, in China, Indonesia, India, Nepal, Bangladesh. When these people become a Christian, they do so knowing this may result in my physical death. But I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm all in on this. Now, with that as the baseline, that's the baseline. That's the interpretation. Now hear what France writes next. Ready? Here's a little complicated. The way he writes, and I'm not great at reading, and I'll try to read it in a way uh, to where... It's understandable. As a friend of mine used to say, try to put the emphasis on the right syllable. Here we go. He's in here today. Larry. <laughs> Where are you at? Aren't you the one that used to say that? Yep. Got to put the emphasis on the right syllable. All right, here we go. France writes, It may be legitimate to extrapolate from this principle, this baseline literal death, it may be legitimate to extrapolate from this principle to a more general demand for disciples to put loyalty to Jesus before their own interests and comfort. Okay, there is that. But he says, but that can only be a secondary application of the passage. Jesus' words are not to be taken as merely metaphorical. The cross, verse 24, and losing life, verse 25, which he speaks of are literal. And it seems clear from verse 28 that he did expect at least some of his disciples to be killed because of their loyalty to his cause. So the Lord's talking very literal. Hey, good news. There's some of you here, you're not going to die until what? But you're going to see a representation of my glory first. And as we know from church history, I just alluded, we know of at least three that were in that group who were crucified. And ten that were killed. One, they tried to kill. And of course, Judas just betrayed the Lord. So before I move on to verse 25, can I wrap up verse 24 this way about cross? Ready? Can we just say what it's not? Not being mean. Just let's be clear. Our cross, take up your cross. Our cross is not cancer. And I know I'm talking to some in here who've had cancer. Our cross that we take up for Christ is not having cancer. It's not chronic pain. It's not car trouble. It's not a lost job. It's not having a difficult spouse. You say, why is that? Because you didn't choose those things. You had no choice in those things. Here's why. Those are not our cross because those are things that an unsaved person can also have. Unsaved people get cancer. Unsaved people have chronic pain and car trouble and a lost job and a difficult spouse. So that's not our cross, unless I will qualify it possibly in a moment. You say, then what is it? Now, with the foundation that we're talking about literal dying, now let's apply that with this principle. Write this down. To take up our, our cross entails, if we want to kind of take a whole view with the foundation of literal death, now let's add to this it entails the difficulty of shame and persecution and pain 
and potential death. Hear it. That uniquely comes to those who follow Jesus. Specifically because they follow Jesus. So we could say that's an aspect of taking up our cross. It's the shame and persecution and pain and potential death. That very well may happen. That comes uniquely to those who follow Christ. Specifically because they follow Christ. And with that as a, my definition of an application of this principle, I could then back up and say, guess what? The one who lost their job very well may be because of their faith. If you lose your job, not just because of downsizing, you lost your job because of your faith in Christ and your profession of faith in Christ and your testimony, that may be an aspect of carrying the cross. If your spouse is difficult because of your faith, that very well may be an aspect of that. Now verse 25 quickly. For whoever would save his life, so the Lord now wants to flesh this out. For whoever would save his life, wait, wait, whoa, I don't want to die. I want to follow Christ, I do, but I don't want to die. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jeff, how would you interpret this? Once again, if the text isn't clear for us to allegorize, then we're not going to allegorize. We're going to take it literally. What are we talking about? A literal interpretation of verse 25 as well. Let's borrow here from Barclay. He writes the following. It's a pretty good quote. Let's go ahead and start it. The man who is faithful. That's a faithful Christian. The man who is faithful may die. Hey, if you keep going that direction, you're going to die. The man who is faithful may die, but he dies to live. He dies to live. Oh, they killed him, but he dies. Now he's living. When did he really start living? At the moment they killed him, he really started living. And then he says, the man who abandons his faith for safety. I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to tell them. or I'm going to change my story. I'm going to recant. The man who abandons his faith for safety may live. The idea for a little while. But he lives to die. He lives to die. Again, hear that one more time. The man who is faithful may die, but he dies to live. The man who abandons his faith for safety may live, but he lives to die. And so, let's do this. Jeff, you know this is Graceview, South Carolina, 2021. We get it, things are getting bad in America, but as it is right now... None of us have been called to die for our faith. So what does this mean for us? I want to contend that if the baseline mentality has truly been bought into that when I follow Christ, it may cost me my life. If that's been bought into and that's thoroughly in place, then we should expect that follower of Christ to exhibit the same level of surrender to God and the same level of denying of themselves in all other areas of their life. Let me say it this way. If a person is really bought in, hey, I just happen to live in a culture where we're not asked to die for our faith, but if, if you're really bought in with the same concept as they, as they were asked to fall, buy into literally, then though we may not have yet died, that should still come into our life and be evident in all other lives. Yes, I'm still willing to surrender at great cost and still deny myself at great cost. To put it negatively, as I did earlier, not just to do it and to be mean, but if I could say it this way. 
if I were to ask you, if things get bad in America, and we can start seeing this happen, if things were to get so bad in America that literally people would start going to prison for their faith and believing the Bible, unless you back off of it, they're going to call this book a hate book. That's where they're heading. And if you keep talking and saying, you're going to lose your job. And you guys keep on and on, you're going to go to prison. You keep on and on, there's going to be beatings. You keep, and some of you are like, dude, there you go, man. One of those preachers, just calm down. We're nowhere near that. Do you know how fast we're moving in the last two or three years? Things are on a rapid pace. If it gets to the point where Americans are going to die for their faith, would you be faithful? That's the question. Can I not say in too mean of a way, but I'm talking to me and to you. We need not fool ourselves into thinking, I'm pretty sure I would die for my faith if you refuse to live for Christ in a sacrificial way now. You don't need to think, I think I would die for Jesus, but you don't live for Jesus. If you don't live for Jesus in any sacrificial way, if the extent of your Christianity is you turn on the stream service on Sunday morning, and you watch us, and there, that's it. Or you come on Sunday morning, and you sit, and you soak, and receive, and get up, and leave, and that's it for the rest of the week, then don't fool yourself into thinking, I'm pretty sure I would die for my faith. No, you won't. If you won't live for the Lord, trust me, you will not die for the Lord. Look at verse 25. Just a couple more thoughts here. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life, now, again, with the baseline, we're talking about literal dying, can I now apply this this way? Apply it. I'm going to make an application. Save it. Whoever would save. Can I use it this way? Save. I'm, I need to define two words. Again, this is an application. If this foundation of literal buy-in is there, I'm willing to die. And it shows up in my life in forms of the way you use your time. And the list I'll give in a moment. Once that's in place, then now can we step back and say, is there another way as an application to look at verse 25? Whoever would save his life, whoever would save his life. Watch how I'm getting ready to use it. Save, protect, guard, accumulate. I want to save. I want to accumulate. Here's, here's a little subtle watch. My version of life. We all have a version. Can I say it this way? Whoever wants to save and protect and guard his or her ideal version of life is going to lose their ideal version of life when you die. But if you're willing to give up, I think what the Lord is also teaching, be ready to die literally, but I think he's also teaching, if you are willing to give up in this life, your ideal version of this life, for my sake, then at death, you'll get so much more than you ever thought you gave up, and you'll be glad that you did. That's what he's saying. I want to give a list, and I need to preface it by saying what I'm about to read to you is not, they are not sinful things of themselves. They are not sinful of themselves. They're not sinful. Unfortunately, though, by the way, I won't tell you mine, but I have more than two in this list that are mine, that I struggle with. Many Christians selfish, check yourself, many Christians selfishly pursue, and I'm talking about our ideal version of life, many selfishly pursue 
possessions. Stuff. Buy. More. You're good now, right? No, need more. Okay, now you're good. Nope. More. Trinkets. Possessions. Many pursue power. I need more power. Titles. I've got to have a title. Wealth. Just pursuing it. All out. And some of these are like, I don't have a lot of possessions because I'm all about the wealth. I want to have the wealth in case I ever need it. It's for the rainy day. Some, guilty, food. It's like, good food. Others, it's drinks. Like, drink. That's like, that's what they're after. Time to drink. Some, it's clothes and appearance and being popular. Sports. Somebody in here is guilty of this. Battles this. They pursue that. Sports and travel. And you could add a dozen more things. All of those things, not sinful of themselves, but they can all be lost. A takeover of another nation, a downturn in the economy, a takeover at the company, a fire, a theft, old age. You lose a game, lose a championship game, lose a coach, lose the right players. If it's all about popularity, you get rejected, and ultimately all of these things are lost at death. These are gifts from God, and some, don't get me wrong, sometimes God gives us good gifts, but none of those things are the essence of life, and a lot of people go through life thinking those are the essence of life. I'm here to pursue these things that I want, and the Lord says, you have to separate yourself from that. Separate, deny yourself that. Make it about me. I'll read this paragraph because, again, I go quicker when I do. Many Christians live as though their wish list is the whole point of life. Now what do I want to do next? What do I want to do next? Like some, literally, some, it, can, it can even broke down, be broke down this way. I just had breakfast, and now I'm going to have this floating thought. What am I doing for lunch? What? Like it kind of literally never goes away. It's the theme of the morning. And then having had lunch, the theme of the afternoon. I wonder what we're going to do for supper. Like texting, like, like what do you want to do? Nine, 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 two o'clock, three o'clock. Hey, I got an idea. I, I, can I change? I got another hanker. Like, are you working at a job or something? Do you get paid to, like, to drive this point home and we'll move on? Grace for you, the goal is not to work hard, work hard, build enough wealth so that we can do all the things we've always wanted. Why don't you listen to me? We need to die to that. We've got to die to that. Build enough, you say, that's the American way, I understand. Build enough wealth so we can do all the things we've always wanted. You have to die to that. That is your enemy. And listen, I can daydream with the best of them. I can daydream with the best of them. Kind of got two groups here, right? So you got group number one. They, they daydream about what it would be like to have surplus time and surplus resources. Ah, if I had surplus time, if I had surplus resources, and they're over here just wasting their life. But over here you have some Christians who've hit a point in life, God has blessed them, they have surplus time, and they have surplus resources, and they just turn it inward to themselves. Can I wrap this thought up and say it this way? 
if we die with an unfulfilled, unfinished bucket list because we instead chose to sacrifice for Christ, that's okay. Eternity matters a whole lot more than our little bucket list. There's a lot of Christians go through life and they have surplus time and surplus money. And it's almost like they have this running thing and it grows. And it's like, just check them off. Got to check off two or three this year. And it's like, that's the to-do list of life. That's not the essence of life. This is the essence of life. The Lord's saying, me, follow me, do what I do. I'm picturing a couple and it dawns on them. And one of them says, I'm feeling God lead this. And the other one says, me too. And then they get real for a moment. It's like, but you do know if we do that, we're not going to be able to do that. I know. But I want to do this. Me too. That's not a tragedy. That's a good thing. How would this principle affect us? I do not believe in checklist Christianity, and I don't believe in checklist religion of man-made do's and don'ts, and this is not a man-made list of do's and don'ts because these are so broad, they're not specific on purpose. I'm not your God. You don't need me to tell you how to live. All I'm going to say is if this principle in verse 24 that is spelled out in verse 25 is true in my life, and if it were true in your life, what would it look like? I have 15 things. I'm going to read them fast. We could, you, we could add 100, literally. What would the dynamic of this in my life look like? Number one, it would highly affect. I'm just going to fly. It would affect how we use our time. It would affect what we look at and what we don't look at. It would affect which words. Like, how would this come out in my life? You'll, you'll use certain words and you'll not use other words. It will affect the career field that you choose to go into and pour your life's energy into and why you work. It'll change your whole view about why you work. It'll affect how you spend your money. You'll realize this isn't my money. It's the Lord's money. It will affect what we listen to riding down the road on the, in, on the radio, in a podcast, on a website, literally what I get to listen to, what trains of thought. What, there came a random one. Is it allowed to stay or not? This is affected by, is this principle in my life? How do we view difficulties and struggles? The place of prayer and Bible study and church in our life is affected by verses 24 and 25. When I do pray, what requests I'm actually offering to the Lord are affected by this. Many Christians pray, but many Christians pray very selfish prayers. If I'm buying into this, it changes the whole dynamic. Not just reading my Bible, but how I read my Bible. Now all of a sudden, it's not just a bunch of theory for debate. This is marching orders for me. This is marching. This is like authoritative over my life. How does it will affect us? It'll affect our whole view of church. We will not be able to just come and be like a spectator or a consumer. All of a sudden, we'll start realizing like, you know what? I am part of the body of Christ, and I want to be connected to these people, and I want to serve these people, and I want to use my spiritual gifts. It'll be people instead of like so-and-so or that leader or somebody on that staff over there. They haven't been to my house yet. It's going to be like, forget that. I don't expect that. I need to get involved with this body of believers. Like, I need to start serving. That's this mentality instead of the consumer mentality. How prominent will evangelism and discipleship and missions, it's not just paid professionals, it's me, it's my calling when I have this in place. It means that when I understand my natural, Jeff Bartlett or yours, 
my natural way I'm made up. This is my natural bent. These are my inclinations. These are my weaknesses. These are my fears. I don't get to hide behind those as excuses for not fulfilling the Lord's will and using my spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. It's like this trumps my natural inclinations. I am to forsake me, my psyche, myself, and buy into what the Lord wants to do through me. That way he gets more credit. When I do serve the Lord, what is my motive? See, dead person doesn't seek and crave glory. A dead person's like just non-responsive to the self, wanting and craving, and just responsive to the Lord. It'll affect whether or not we forgive people. And we could write a hundred more. So the idea here is not, man, Jeff, you're describing a miserable person. Actually, I'm describing the best kind of life the enviable life, the favorable life, the all-good life that is just sold out. I get one shot at life, and I'm going to live it for the Lord, come what may. He's sovereign, which we sang about. Number two, this one's short. Would you notice in verse 26 some sobering questions for eternal perspective? Sobering questions for eternal perspective. Two questions. you have verse 26 in front of you? Would you look at it? Would you look at the second question first? Would you go there? Second question first. The verse says, the Lord says, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, I may be over baking the ham, and I may be off base here. I wouldn't die for this, but I'm going to make a proposal to you. See it again. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you know how most of us hear that? Here's what we hear in our head. So what would it take for you to give up your soul? That's what we hear. How many of you are like me? You're my age or around that age, and you remember years ago, I know they're redoing some game shows. Do any of you remember the old game show? I think the guy's name was Monty Dupree. What was his game show? So make sure I'm on the right one. Let's, I, let's make a deal. So I think that was right. Remember how he had these stacks of 20s? Remember when $20 was a lot? And 50s and 100s. And which door do you choose? Oh, go door number two. All right. Before I give you door number two, let's make a deal. I'll give you $50 to not get door number two. Ah, and the crowd's yelling and all that stuff. Here's how we view this. Here's what we hear in our head. So what would it take for you to give up your soul? Oh, almost like there's some this evil devilish person, maybe the devil of himself, and he has all these resources, and he's like, eh, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to give up your soul? That's not the question. Pay attention. This is subtle, but I think it's important. That's not the question. The question is rather, what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see the difference? Here's one. The first, what we hear in our head is, what would you take? What would it take for me to give to you for you to give up your soul? The actual question is, what would you give in return for your soul? So it's not you receiving something, it's you giving. That's the question. Let me word it this way. Pay attention. The question is not from the blind perspective of someone in this life. See, someone in this life may make a boneheaded decision like, so what would it take for your soul? Uh, a million dollars? You got a million dollars? I got a million dollars. You'll sell your soul for a million dollars? I think there's some nutcase running around trying to sing songs and write songs who has sold, him, sold himself to, the, to Satan. I think that's literally happening in our country. I really wonder about it. I don't know a whole lot about him, but it's very troubling. There are people 
the deal that Jesus was offered in chapter 4, don't you know Satan has offered other people that you say, come on, Jeff, you got this mystical idea. I'll guarantee you demonic forces have made deals with people that if they'll just give themselves to the use of Satan like full throttle, he'll give them things and they've out and made a name for themselves. I guarantee it's happened. Let's continue. It is not from the blind perspective of a person in this life. Here's the key. It's from the very clear perspective of someone looking back at this life. They're already in the next life. Here's the key. Having forfeited their soul. That's the question. For the end of the verse. What shall a man give in return? So they're the one giving. What would they give in return to have their soul back? They're looking back at the life. No matter how good they had it, I want you all to answer the answer to Jesus' question. Here's a person who's already lived. They're in the next life. Had a great life, apparently. But they forfeited their soul. Where are they now? They're in hell. So the answer to Jesus' question, what would they give in return for their soul to be able to go back and have Jesus and live for Jesus? The answer is one word. starts with the letter E. They would give what? Everything. The answer to Jesus' question is, what would they give? They'd give everything. It's not how much is it going to take for you in this blind spot now, not knowing about eternity. It's this person that's already there. What would you give? I'd give everything. Write this down. So to illustrate, now we're going back to the first question. To illustrate verse 25, Jesus uses, it seems to me, the extreme of the ideal earthly life. He uses the extreme of the ideal earthly life to show the tiny value of the ideal earthly life. He uses the extreme. A few months back, I was preaching chapter 13. We were looking at the parable of the buried treasure and the parable of the pearl with great price. And I used this analogy because back when we were in chapter 13, I jumped ahead to this verse and I used it there. Well, now that we're here, I need to repeat something that I did then, okay? So if you like, it sounds like he's used this. Well, now it's the proper time to use it. We're in chapter 16 now. Jesus uses the extreme. What would it take? What would you get? He uses the extreme. So we're talking about a hypothetical person. Go with me. Really do this. Picture a person. Yours may be a woman. It may be a man. doesn't matter. Picture this person. Ready? They own the entire planet. They don't own the subdivision you live in. You're like, man, I'd love to own the whole subdivision. No, they don't own the subdivision. They don't own Anderson. They don't own South Carolina. They don't own the eastern seaboard. If they did, they would surely be the richest person the world's ever seen. They don't own that. They don't own the United States. They literally own every piece of land. They own all the, all the waterways, all the oceans. All, you get it? Every house, every plane, every boat. They, this person owns every other person. They own it all. Everybody here knows them. We're owned by that person. But they gained the whole world, the whole world, all the glory that goes with the world. So hang with it. They not only own the world and all the people, they're the most liked person. Everybody adores them. It's like, we're glad they're the ones that own the world. They're just a great person. And we're not done. She's the prettiest. Or he's the handsomest. You understand? All the handsome, all the pretty. You get, I mean, the best of the best. It's widely known. There's this one, though. And it ain't even close. But we're not done. 
They're the most intelligent. They're the wisest. They're the funniest. They're the most charming. I mean the most charming. They're an absolute people magnet. I mean, they're the best of the best. They're still not done. They are the strongest. You get all the strong ones together, they know, oh, no, that's the, they're the strongest. This is the same person. They're the strongest and the fastest. They can't compete in the, in the competitions. It's not fair. It's just foregone. Hey, we're getting ready to battle for a second. They're the fastest. They're the most athletically skilled in whatever it is. Just tell them the rules and give them a racket. Give them a club. Give them a ball. And I do what? Oh, you mean like, <laughs> that went in. And this is how many? Three point, oh, and like just, you know, kind of, forget it. You're, you're ridiculous. But it was still not done. They're the best singer. They're the best actor. They're the best, all in one, the best artist, the best writer, the best speaker. What did they profit if they lose and forfeit their soul? They didn't profit anything. They lost everything because 120 years, even at the best of the best of life, 120 years, is nothing if at the end of it you've lost your soul. Do you guys understand that 120 years in comparison to eternity is as if it's nothing? A drop in all the oceans of the world is far more substantial than 120 years in eternity. They have nothing. Write this. Jesus wants us to understand that people's souls are the most valuable thing on earth. And he wants us to understand that everyone who rejects him to pursue the world will lose their soul to eternal death. Human souls are the most valuable thing on earth. Everyone who rejects Him will lose their soul to eternal death. You just cannot compare the best life here with eternity, no matter what it is. And why is that important? I'm going to give you a moment because you're writing that. As you're writing, listen, here's how we're going to transition to our final thought this morning. Jeff, I get it. I understand. I do think that's what the Lord is teaching us. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to give up. Let's just get real for a moment. I'm afraid to give up my one shot at life. Jeff, but that life you just described, that one person owns everything, and they're the prettiest and the handsomest and the strongest and the fastest and the smartest and the wisest and the funniest and the most charming, most athletic, best singer, Writer, speaker, actor. The, the, the any person would love to be the number one best in any one of those areas. They're, they're, I'm going to just tell you straight up, Jeff, that sounds really good to me. I'd love to have just a little slice of that. I'd like to have just a little slice of that. Just a, little, just a few bites, even on a temporary basis. I'm just not ready to give up my one shot at life here. Why would I do that? That would be a tragedy. If verse 24 and 25 actually happened in my life, that would be a tragedy. No, it wouldn't. Why? Third this morning, the coming reality of judgment by Christ. The coming reality of judgment by Christ. Jesus says that would not be a tragedy. If verse 24, you denied yourself, took up your cross, you're willing to die, and it actually happens that you do lose your life, literally, that's not a tragedy. Why? Here it is. Jesus has not hypothetically gained the world. He has not hypothetically gained the world. He already owns the world. Listen, who we're talking about, we're talking about the one who really does own the world. He owns all the people in it. He owns the universe. He owns 
all the world and all things and all people, not just in a given time, but in all of eternity. He owns it, he possesses it, and he can give it and disperse from it as he sees fit. So he says, this is not a tragedy if verse 24 and verse 25 literally happened in your life. Jesus is warning us, don't, so hear me this morning, don't, Jeff, listen, don't lose sight. Don't ever lose sight of what is inevitable just because it's not yet visible. What is the inevitable? Write it down. In verse 27, Jesus promises us he is going to come. That's what he says, verse 27. So why would we take this eternal view and invest in following the Lord? Here's why. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So the Lord is saying it's inevitable, not yet visible. But he is going to come, and when he comes, he's promising, I will repay every person who has sacrificed their physical life, I'm going to repay them. Every person who has even sacrificed a version of their ideal life, and I'm also going to repay every person who has rejected me to pursue the world, they will receive condemnation. So when I first read that, I thought, okay, is verse 27 focusing more on rewarding Christians who sacrifice, or is it mainly focusing on condemning those who reject the Lord? And I think the answer is both. Probably, for the sake of, of the context here, he's probably a little more trying to encourage Christians, it's okay if you lose your best version of what you think life is here, and even if you lose your physical life. But it has to include, I will repay each person. He says, I will repay. Verse 27 agrees with the rest of Scripture. I want you all to listen. Did you see it? I am, he is going to come with his angels. His angels means the Son of Man, not the Father. So apparently the Father's angels are given to the Son. They become his angels. He comes in the glory of the Father. And then he will repay. The Son of Man will repay. Listen to John 5, 24, 22. It's not on the screen. Listen. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. What? The Father, you mean when we get judged, it's not going to be God the Father? No, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Listen to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul tells some Gentiles in Athens, very smart people in Athens, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You say, well, then God's judging. Hang on. Because he, God, has fixed a day. He has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who's this man that's going to judge all people? We know who it is because he's the one that God raised from the dead. We know that is Christ. Write this down. He says, I'm going to come in the glory of my Father. I'm going to come. The angels are going to have a part in the day of judgment. And he says, I'll come in the glory of my Father. What is God's glory? His glory is the totality of his attributes and character unfiltered. It's the totality of God's attributes, the totality of his character, unfiltered. So when Christ returns, his glory 
is going to be the glory that the Father has. It's going to be all over the Lord Jesus. It's going to be His own glory. He is God the Son. He's going to no longer have a veiled glory. Grace be, I promise you, when that happens, that's going to be a real event. When we see Him, when everyone sees Him, everyone at that point is going to be, want to be associated with Him. For many, it'll be too late. Let me wrap up verse 27 this way. Verse 27 is the Lord's way of telling us no one who sacrificed for him will regret it. Many people on the day of judgment will regret that they didn't sacrifice more. I'm sure I'll be one of those. I wish I would have sacrificed more. Hear what I'm about to say. No true martyr of Christ regrets it. Not one. I think many of us, if we don't die for Christ, may get to that day and go, Lord, it would have been fine with me if you would have let me be a martyr for you. I understand you're sovereign. That wasn't your will for my life. They seem really delighted that they got to give their life for the cost. No true martyr will regret it. And then at the end, look at verse 28. Confusing verse. Hard to be dogmatic. I'll give opinion as the fourth option. Truly I say to you, the Lord says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Hear it again. So He's laying this all on them. Hey, fellas, by the way, there's some of you standing. There's some standing right here. I'm not telling you how many. I'm not telling you who it is. But there's some standing here right now who they're not going to taste death until. They'll die after this, but they'll not taste death until they see the Son of Man, that's Christ, coming in His kingdom. The idea of coming in His kingdom with power. Who are these people? There's lots of debate. What is this talking about? These are witnesses of something about Jesus. They're going to see something about Jesus, the Son of Man, that relates to His coming kingdom. What, what are they going to see? Let me offer to you three or four of the most prominent theories. I hate to do it. I lean, as many do, toward the fourth one. But there's a lot lean toward these other ones. Here we go. Who are these witnesses? What are they going to see before they die? Some believe that they would see Jesus's. Write it down. Jesus's endowment with all authority. From the Father, from God. Acts 28, the Lord's going to say, all authority has been given to me. And some think what the Lord means. And by the way, this was just a few months away for them. That by the time a few months comes, that some of them standing there are going to actually see and hear the revelation that the Father has given all authority. And Jesus is going to claim, all authority has been given to me over heaven and earth. Others say it's even more specific than that. They believe that these, whoever these are, however many they are, are going to be witnesses and eyewitnesses to Jesus' ascension to the place of power at the right hand of the Father. Though they'll not actually see Him make it to the right hand of the Father, they will see Him being ascended to the place of authority at the right hand of God. Another one. Many believe, this is a big one, many believe that this is talking about Acts chapter number 2, that there's some here who, again, just months later are going to be witnesses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Some of you standing here, you're going to be witnesses of this. Some are going to see the ascension. Maybe that's what it's pointing to. Others, it's going to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ at Pentecost, setting up His kingdom, and now it has just gone through the world. And in the last 2,000 years, literally billions of people, Jews and Gentiles, have been united into one body. And that's, that's a manifestation of the glory of Christ's kingdom. It's not the millennial kingdom, but it's a great version of His power in this life. And yet, many fall into the category that I would think is this fourth one. Now here, before I have you write it, here's a big clue. 
Mark usually writes chronologically. Luke doesn't hardly ever write chronologically. Matthew, that we're in, writes chronologically, but he's willing to break from chrono- chronological order. All three Gospels that give the passage we've been studying today, all three follow with the exact same thing in, in the next chapter. You see chapter 17? The what? Transfiguration. So it seems when the Lord's saying, by the way, truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He's just talked about literal martyrdom, and he's in essence hinting they are going to be martyred, but not until they see the transfiguration of Christ. And who are we talking about? Their names are, say it with me, Peter and James and John. And that seems to be, and we'll study that the next time we're in the book of Matthew. So as I leave today's text, let's wrap it all together. I'm a grace guy. I just believe in it. And so here's where I have to leave. I want to leave balanced this morning. I must not, by the way, I'm borrowing this paragraph and a quote from MacArthur. This is where I'll finish this morning. I'm borrowing these from the message of the buried treasure. Remember, the kingdom of the Lord is worth anything. It's worth any price. So with that in mind, what are we to make of this deny and take up your cross and be willing to die? And even if you die, you still haven't lost your life, you gain. But if you, if you play it safe and, and save your life, whether you're going to lose it, what does this mean? Hear me, Grace Fee. Please hear me. I must not leave any impression that we're saved from our sins by how we live or by what we give up. Don't think that. But at the same time, I must not diminish what Jesus is teaching about his lordship over true Christians that always accompany salvation. So we're not saved by verses 24 and 25, but verse 24 and 25, this mentality and adopting this and embracing this potential shame and persecution, pain and even death, that always goes with salvation. You say, I didn't even know that. I didn't know what I was getting into. Well, that's what you're getting into. And when you hear that, You won't buck at it. A true believer is not going to buck at it. Let me continue. Verse 24 and 25 is not how we are saved, but it always goes with getting saved. Write your last note. Genuine surrender is not the price of admission to Christ's kingdom. It is not the price of admission to Christ's kingdom. But genuine surrender is assumed at the moment of salvation. It's assumed at the moment of salvation. And had I had more room on the handout, I would have included the rest of that sentence. Now let me say the rest of it. Genuine surrender. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. It's not the price of admission to Christ's kingdom, but genuine surrender is assumed at the moment of salvation, and it is joyfully accepted Because of the value of living with God. Yes, I'll take that. Because the value of living, I get to live with God forever in heaven. Are you kidding? Then no matter how bad it could get here, that's greater. MacArthur really says it much better. This is a repeat from months ago. He writes the following. I'm going to do it once, so you got to pay attention. I want to repeat this over and over, but I won't. Here we go. 
Such surrender is not a human work. Let's work salvation. Such surrender is not a human work to gain salvation, but a part of the saving work of God wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It's something He does. We're trusting Christ. When we do, He works this in our life, this surrender. He continues, Most people who consider receiving Christ as Savior and Lord do not consciously inventory all of their material and social and other possessions to see if He is worth sacrificing those things for. No. When they discover the infinite value of salvation, I go to heaven instead of hell, are you kidding? When they discover the infinite value of salvation, they simply yield to Christ. Their focus is not on what they give up, but on what they receive. But if their redemption is genuine, their lives will evidence a willingness to surrender whatever stands between them and faithfulness to their Lord. So we're talking about investment. We're talking about investment today. So I'm going to ask you a question or two, and I ask myself this first question, and I, very quickly I realize the last 33 years of my life have very, very much gone to one main thing. Here's a question. Take an honest assessment. We're talking about investment. Be honest with yourself. What two or three things have you invested your life in the most? If you've lived 15 years, if you've lived 85 years, answer that in your head. Don't answer out loud. Be honest. What two or three things have you invested your life in? Many right now are thinking, my family. Some are thinking, my business. Or my career. Or my hobby. Be honest. This doesn't work unless you're honest. What two or three things have you invested your life in most? Next question. Do you have any regrets? Should you change what you've invested in in however much time you have remaining. If you have a month of life left, if you have 60 years of life left, based off being honest and not in light of this text, should you change? Jesus calls us to live how we will wish we had lived when we see Him. When we get over here, we see Him. He's saying, go ahead and live now how you will wish you had lived when you see Christ. Next question. If the coming days in America call for Christians to die, will you be faithful to Christ? Will you be faithful? I hope I will. I can't say definitively. I hope I will. I think if I don't, if I, I think if I live to age 75 or 80, I, I expect this at least imprisonment and Severe penalties are coming, surely by the next 25, 30 years based off of the last five. Would you be willing to die? Until then, will you sacrifice the most valuable things that you have, not if Christ calls for them, when Christ calls for them. Most valuable things you have. You say, Jeff, we're talking about my life, we're talking about my time, my family, my health, my possessions, we're talking about my wealth. Will you sacrifice the most valuable things that you have when Christ calls for them? Or would you say, I'd rather have those than what Christ is going to give me when he repays everyone who sacrifices for him. I'd rather have these for a little while than that, what he has. May that not be us. Heads bowed, eyes closed.
Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I want to be clear. No one is saved by what he has done. Jesus says, I will repay according to what each person has done. No one is saved by what you've done. But let's be honest. What we do, what we have done, reveals who is saved. What we have done reveals who is saved. There's a lot of Christians. Somebody listening right now, I'm about to describe you. A lot of people call themselves Christians, but in all honesty, they can't point to anything they've ever really given up after they supposedly got saved. Can't really point to anything. Here's the fact. Their life of known sin before they made a profession of faith in Christ continues pretty much as is. The way they use their time hasn't really changed. The way they spend their money and their resources has barely changed. Is that you? To ask it the positive way and the specific way, make yourself answer this question. What has being a member of God's kingdom cost you? Your tomorrow morning, is it different because you're surrendered to Christ than it was before Christ? You being here today is a great sign, but it's not the end of it. It's literally tip of the iceberg. What has being a member of God's kingdom cost you? Now, the most important questions. Really bring the Lord into focus. Is there any area of your life right now that you kind of think has been made off limits to God? Is there any area of your life? Because God knows your heart. He's looking right at it. You say, I'm a Christian, born again. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. All right, ask, is there any area of your life that you've kind of put up some guards and hedges? Next question. What area of your life is God calling you to sacrifice? Is the Lord right now saying, he should be like pounding. If there is something, may not. But there's some of you that is very clear. It's going on in your mind right now. The Lord is saying, there it is. You already know it. He's calling you to sacrifice that for him, to deny yourself, take yourself off of the throne, to die to your self-will in that. You say, but I want it, or I don't want to do that. Is he calling for sacrifice in that area? Three more questions quickly and I'm done. Here they are. Do you honestly trust Jesus when he says he's really going to come back and repay? Do you really believe him? You say, yes, absolutely. He's going to come back and he will repay. If he came back today and you were to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne, but the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian, are you ready to be judged right now this morning? Is your heart pure? Is your life where you want it to be? When he just put his finger on something to sacrifice, did you just push back and say, I'm not going to do that, Lord? If he comes back today, if you die today, say it that way, if you die today and you're before the Lord, are you ready to be judged by him? And then the last one, what have you actually done that the Lord could reward you for? What have you done? Put away false modesty and just be honest and say, what have I done for the Lord? I hope you have something. If not, you'll have a regretful day of judgment. We don't want that. So deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. 
because on that day you would give everything back to be able to have followed Christ fully. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hard things that Jesus teaches us that are the best for us. We trust your heart, your sovereign. You're with us even in the fire, the storm. You're with us in that. Lord, I pray, I pray that if things go a direction here or if you send me somewhere else in this world that it's already extremely dangerous, the most dangerous places in the world for a Christian. If I end up in that, Lord, it's time to give my life for any of these, my brothers and sisters. May we lay our lives down joyfully. And then, Lord, if that is truly our heart, let it be evident how we live before we're called to die. Let us just live joyfully the life of sacrifice, not to earn our salvation, but out of obedience to you and out of sheer joy and gratitude, knowing that you love faith and obedience. We receive you as our Lord today. We claim you. May we live like it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week.